Welcome back to Verified Wines Podcast. Uh, joining me today is Mr. Ian Davies from um, Davies Ian Select or Davies Family Selection uh, over here. So, Ian, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? How do you help get wine from a grape to liquid in our glasses? Sure. Uh, been in the industry a long time. Um, I think it's a little over 30 years. Uh, started out uh, in the restaurant business, went to Johnson & Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island for hotel restaurant management. Heard of it. <laughs> Spent a little time working in the steak business, worked for Capitol Grill, worked for Morton's of Chicago. Yeah? How was that like? Uh, it was pretty awesome. Uh, <laughs> back then, you know, th there was a lot of autonomy. It's a lot different now with, with corporate wine lists and all that fun stuff. So mm -hmm. we got to select all our own. Uh, my favorite was working in New York City. Uh, I worked on 45th and 5th Avenue. Uh, had a thousand bottle wine list with a thousand bottles in the cellar backing it up. And I was at 25, 26 years old. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. That must have been a fun experience, it, especially being 25. Oh, it was really cool. cool stuff like that. California was just really coming on the scene strong yep. back then. So this is like 90, 94, 95. So California Napa Valley wine was just really exploding. Uh, Opus One was like the talk of the town. <laughs> yeah, you know it was uh, it was it was really cool. I, I worked in the original Capitol Grill while I was at Johnson Wales, which was in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay, as a bar back and a prep cook, believe it or not, way back when, um, and that was my first experience uh, with California wine. Every Saturday, uh, they did a staff training from eleven to one, and we taste through everything on the wine list. And here I am, you know, twenty twenty one years old. You know, I, way ahead of my friends understanding yeah. what what wine was. So, did you grow up with wine? Like, was your family into wine, or is that kind of your introductory, and you kind of just fell in love from there? Well, that that was my inter introduction to California wine. So, my my father is actually from Australia. Okay, moved here in 1947. Well, it, not to complicate anything, but he's actually from Texas. But, okay. he, was, <laughs> but he, he was five months old, moved to Australia. My grandfather ran International Harvester southern hemisphere okay and during world war ii they thought he'd be safer in australia and even though his his ship their ship got boarded twice by the japanese on the way to australia so no it wasn't so safe yeah, it wasn't <laughs> but not the uh, best call there <laughs> my my old man was or is still to this day uh very much into burgundy okay and growing up in 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 australia very much like a european family they they drank every wine every night so when I grew up, my dad would open things during the week, especially on Sundays, he'd open something good. And this is like seven years old, eight years old, all the way until I went to college. So, right, so you got to experience a little bit. It was, it was really cool. The only, the only um, I, I would say the only place my, my knowledge is lacking is Italy uh, because my father wasn't in Italy. I got into New World Wine when, when I worked for Capital Grow and Morton's. And now, obviously, with Australia and New Zealand, I'm, I'm all New World. And I always always found that comment, new world, to be very interesting because the vineyards that I'm dealing with in Australia are some of the oldest in the world. Yeah, when I first heard that, I thought new world was just uh, the Americas because that's right? kind of what they call the new world, but it's basically not Europe. Exactly, <laughs> but, exactly. So, so, which but I yet, found kind of interesting. But Their vines became old and then died off during the phylloxera a campaign during the early 1900s okay so then they they went back to australia to take their cuttings back from what was taken to australia Interesting. so so some of the vineyards that i deal with today are some of the original cuttings that were planted in australia back in 1840 1842 it's it's wild 
Yeah. Can about, you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So um, it, in in the the 1830s, if if you look back in history, mm-hmm. Eastern Bloc kind of you know like like the upheaval that's going on right now. Okay. Uh, same sort of thing was going on, but but in religion. So Salesians and Jesuits exited Europe. They, they got out as quickly as they could, and they came from the Eastern Bloc. So if you look at a map, you think about where they went west. So they went through Germany, you know, Mosul, Rhine, right. and then down through Alsace, uh, through Burgundy, Bordeaux, Champagne, yep. Rhone. You think of all the varietals we find in Australia. Think about where they came from, and then they exited from Spain. So you, And, and the, the really cool thing that I learned that I didn't know is that they actually would take cuttings, dip them in wax... And that's how they stayed moist on that that six to eight week trip from Europe all the way to Australia. And then they just, you know, tap the wax off, stick them in the soil, and boom, you had vines. Interesting. So the varietals like calves, pinots, and stuff like that, because that's what I know. So right now when I think of Australia, one, I think New Zealand, Sablancs, uh sorry. New Zealand's Sablancs. different. So so Australia is is more about you think Rhone varietals, you think Shiraz. Right, right, right. So we're yep. thinking Syrah, Shiraz. Syrah is actually on the rise as a name yeah. in Australia, which is which is really weird for me because I've been dealing with Australia for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's always been about Shiraz. So if you, you think about the Rhone varietals, Moved, Movedra. Right. Uh, down there, um, you know, we talk about Mataro, which is which is weird. So in a, in a GSM, it's not Movedra, it's Mataro. Interesting. So, um, GSM, that's the same grape. It's a uh, monastrel in Spain, right? Yes. All three are the same. Right. So it's just like Shiraz Syrah. Yeah. So they, they just have a different name for it. Uh, but going back to the early 1840s, that area of South Australia just became a colony in 1840. I might be wrong by a year or two, but right around 1840 became a colony. So those that went down to Adelaide, they went up to the Barossa. They went up to the Clare Valley. They went. They went over to McLarenville, and those were the places that were first planted. Interesting. So Cabernet how... really wasn't a thing until a little later. It it really was all Rhone varietals that were first planted. Interesting. And how does the how does the soil kind of or the soil and climate of Australia kind of affect those? Like how do they compare to the Rhone Valley? Very similar. Um, very warm, right? Very warm during the day, as they say. The 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 saying is diurnal, so you have vast temperature change. So you're in the high fifties at night, and then you're up in ninety, ninety five, one hundred, hundred and ten during the day. Huh. So you get that what I call the start stop effect in the vineyard, right. where when it gets cool, the fruit slows down, it stops ripening, and then in the morning, um, as the as the fog clears, the sun comes out. The heat comes out, and and then you get the ripening throughout the day. So you get you get you get those vast flavors because of that. Australia just had one of the latest harvests they've ever had. I mean, I I had um, Ben Glazer telling me that they were still pulling fruit last week, which is almost seven weeks late. Yeah, compared to normal vintage. So if if you reverse hemisphere, that would be like saying we're harvesting after Thanksgiving in California. It's wild. What, a, what would be the cause of that? Um, drought, uh, okay. lack of lack of rain. Um, it, it 
it's just it, it there's been little rainfall in australia in the last couple of years um you, you know you've heard about the fires in in right i was actually that's the first thing that popped into into my head when you mentioned the droughts the fires in california it's it, kinda... it was pretty bad a couple of years ago they you know knock on wood um in south australia we saw fires in the adelaide hills actually were decimated in 2019 uh but it it's one of those things that you you've got these really old vines and you look at what happened in california a vine is actually um it, it's a fire break it mm -hmm. stops the fire and, and a lot of people won't talk because the the vines are moist right you know it's just like throwing green wood on, on a fire at home it doesn't burn no we're not so, i tried actually i tried the other day <laughs> <laughs> you get a lot of smoke yeah but but no fire but yeah no so it's so it's interesting but um australia to me is is just a just a really cool place i mean when when you when you get to south australia you see the history you see right. you know in, in in the case of of ben glazer he's pulling fruit off a very old vineyard called ebenezer ebenezer is is in a town in northern barasa called noriupta mm -hmm. For those that can't pronounce it, we just say Nuri, <laughs> so you can say it all out. I'll stick with that one. <laughs> but it's it's very much like Napa. So when you get to the north of Napa, you're in Calistoga, mm -hmm. and it's like a bowl. So it holds the heat during the day, and at night, it gets cold, and it and it holds the holds the cool weather at night. So the fruit really likes that. Right. Um, in in this case, you're looking at original cuttings. So. Um, Back in 1842, Ebenezer was planted, and it's owned by by a fifth generation family owned vineyard uh, called the Hoffmans. The Hoffman family has owned it for five generations. Interesting. So it's it's it, and you go there and you're looking at gnarly little vines that that stand about maybe two and a half feet tall, three feet tall, and they look like little apple trees. And, and huh. it's it it's like. Um, the circumference is, is is like nine to twelve inches. I mean, they're massive, but they're only about about two and a half to three feet high. And a lot of the people have trellised them since then. But the, when people talk about old vines in the U.S., a lot of them are are planted on um, resistant rootstock to phylloxera, mm -hmm. or non-resistant, resistant, not resistant. Um, the vines in Australia are on their original cuttings, so they're not on resistant rootstock. So they, so when someone says in California, you know, we've got 80-year-old vines, we have 100-year-old vines, 100-year-old vines in California produce such little fruit, it's not even worth having them. But in Australia, because they're not on resistant rootstock, they're on their original rootstock, they still produce decent volumes. And richer flavors, more complex, Real, I imagine. Deep root system. I mean, they're digging and digging and digging for water because there is none. Um, they, they see no rain. I, I, I would think, I'm just going to take a guess at it, but I would, I would say that the Brasa sees between five and, and seven inches of rainfall per year. Interesting. So they do have to use a little bit of drip irrigation now and again just to keep enough moisture in the soil. But, I mean, I, I'd never seen... The quality level of the fruit that's coming off these vines is just insane. 
it's almost like humans the the more we have to dig and dig and dig to to reach water the bolder and stronger we become right yes that's very true <laughs> that's very true i mean it's it's one of those things that these these vines they stress and they stress and they stress right and they they produce i mean they, when you you look at some of these vines they may have four or five clusters on them and then you look at like cabernet you can stick your thumb between each berry that's <laughs> they're really long clusters but yet the berries are so small you can stick your thumb between them it's not like a table grape where you yeah, look, yeah right you, you know what i mean you, you can't get between them but in these particular grapes there's there's so little rainfall that they're very long but yet you can stick your thumb between them so that that what's what's interesting with that is that the sun can come in and and get around totally around each grape where when you get a really tight cluster you don't see that interesting yeah and this all affects the flavor in what in what way uh, the lower the yield, the more concentrated the fruit, right. you know, and, and, and then you look at the, the depth and character of what these vines have been through and they just produce some of the best Syrah, Grenache, Cinso, Movedra, Viognier. I mean, and, and it's funny when you go back to the original vineyards, a lot of these guys, you talk about field blends in, in the Rhone Valley where Viognier may be just popping up. And yeah. then they go and they harvest and, and it's it they're not blending Viognier in on purpose. It just happens through the harvest. Interesting. What uh what wines in your portfolio kinda kinda resemble kind of this process? Or do you have any wines that come from this region? Oh, so so the Ben Glatzer, the the Glatzer winery is is in the Barossa. Okay. We're, they're they're picking off of the Ebenezer Vineyard. Um Wines like Amon Ra, which has a huge cult following, which I tried this morning, it uh, was uh, delicious. It's <laughs> it's 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 what we would refer to affectionately as sexy juice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 an incredible wine. Ben is all about harmony and balance in his wines, so they're not they're not too high. The the, the, the issue back in 2010 to 2014 2013 on wines coming from this area is the trend was to make high alcohol wines, over extracted wines, wines with high sugar levels in order to achieve those higher alcohol levels. And the American consumer loved it, loved it, loved it. Robert Parker loved it, loved it, loved it. And I think it was the demise of this area for a while. Now, a lot of the wineries, a lot of the winemakers have gotten back to their roots. They're going back to what their original wines tasted like. The alcohols are not above 15%, 15.5%. You know, they're, they're not putting them in, in new wood anymore. Right. They're using second and third year old French oak, not American oak. So we're, see, we're seeing the Barossa go back to, to its roots, which is great because right. the wines are amazing. And they're, they're all about balance and harmony. Right, it's a little bit easier too. I mean, there's some wines that that needed so much bottling. No, know? you're you're absolutely right. So, so now now I mean, wines are as I call them. A lot of these wines back in the day were made for car aging. And what I mean by that, they'd come into your shop, they'd buy a bottle of wine, they'd open it by the time they got home. Right. You know, so I call that car aging. Now these wines aren't particularly made to sit in the cellar for 15 20 25 years now three to five years is enough interesting there are those those uh those wines within a winery's portfolio that some of them you know 
I, I call them the, the, the star on top of my Christmas tree. You know, those prestige wines that are coming out like Amon-Ra, they do need some, some age uh, in the, in the cellar. But in the, in this particular case, most of the wines today are being made to be drank within three to five years of coming off the vine. Interesting. So to, to a consumer kind of starting out, how would you kind of describe cellar aging? Cause I mean, there's some wines that you're not going to put in a cellar, but how would you kind of describe that to somebody when they're picking out their wines to age? Younger, younger, um, younger wines that are made with Cabernet that are made with, um, more tannic grape varieties need time. They need time so that that, that tannin kind of comes into check. Um, that that oak dissipates fruit comes forward you know i that but those are wines that are aged wines like a napa valley cabernet back in the 70s you know a a dunn cabernet or a heights cabernet though sterling back in the day those wines needed 10 15 years before you could even think about opening them a dunhell mountain cabernet I wouldn't open until it was at least 15 years old. And that, and that's because the, the tannin is, it is so strong when they're young. You don't see the fruit. The tannin completely overwhelms your palate. It's almost like um, that puckering that happens. You know, it okay. gets underneath your, your gum line and it rolls them back. And you feel that, that dryness on your palate. That's tannin. You can either get tannin from from oak or you get it from the grape. You get it from the skins. And you think about the smaller varietals like Cabernet, the, the pulp to skin ratio, the, if the skin thickness is what gives you tannin. And then oak also gives you tannin. So it's the, the difference, it's hard to tell. Right. I'd have to be sitting here drinking a glass of wine with you that, that had a lot of oak and one that had really low yields right right so both will have a lot of tannin but one comes from oak one comes from fruit does that make sense yeah yeah that makes perfect sense yeah that was uh i mean i learned a lot <laughs> definitely learned a lot and that's why i like doing this too because i get to actually play this back and um and actually really take in the information but um but yeah that was that's the beauty of of wine i mean everything's different and, yeah and even yeah. even today at, at the age of 52 i'm i'm still learning yeah. why wine is is one of those businesses that y you're never bored mm -mm. there's always something new to learn about always something uh a varietal you've never heard of i mean it, it, think about italy there's there's so many different varietals some i've never even heard of yeah uh, i say this all the time you could have a whole store of just italian wines and do well because they have so many and, and, so and continue to change them and continue exactly. to be interesting and, and, and bring something new to the consumer. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And that, that seems to be the trend in Australia right now. We, we used to, in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, we called them when California was really pushing Italian wines, we called them Calitals. So I'm calling them Ozitals. <laughs> so it's the same thing is happening. Um, Melbourne is the largest Italian pop, population per capita um in the world outside of italy Interesting. so huge italian population in australia huge greek greek population in australia it's also a big asian population um and, and one of the things uh we talked about today especially uh both new zealand and australia a lot of their wines 
are are made to pair with Australasian type of food. What when, uh, what type of food is that? When you th when you think of spicy Japanese, Chinese, Korean, it's all that that Asian influence, Pan Asian yeah. influence that that's going on in the in the food scene down there. So same thing when you're making wine, you're thinking about what you're going to eat with it. Exactly. So same thing with with um, how their 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 wines. I don't want to say design because that's not the right word, but um, these wines have evolved to go well with their cuisine. Right. I had the um, just a, a shout out to one of my favorite restaurants. I, I I was able to go to Tetsuya, which is a two star Michelin Japanese restaurant in Sydney, and I, I it takes forever to get a reservation there so i was i was actually able to go to lunch didn't get a dinner reservation but i got a lunch reservation okay. and i went with a couple friends in the industry uh back a couple months ago and the food is just off the charts if i may ask what did you have and what did you pair it with wow um so what one of the one of the cool things to do on the white wine side in australia is to drink an aged semian Kind of like Bordeaux, if you were to drink okay. a, an, an aged Bordeaux Blanc. Simeon is the grape. Is the grape, or as as the Aussies call it, Semillon. They pronounce it wrong. They Semillon. would never. They wouldn't admit they pronounce it wrong, but they pronounce it wrong. The rest of the world pronounces it wrong. Yeah. They pronounce it right. <laughs> the French would cringe, uh, but we drank uh, a twenty, a twenty ten Tyrrells Semillon. So it had over twelve years of age um, in bottle amazing wine it, it takes on this like golden hue it gets this deep color and the richness on your palate it's just from the aging so very cool drank drank an old semian uh drank some old um barasa gsm grenache shiraz movedra or mataro as we as we talked about before um that was really cool um i can't remember the producer that was uh saint hallett was that one? These are ones I don't represent. Right, uh, but <laughs> but I but I enjoy every ounce of, of of wines like that when I'm in Australia. Drinking other people's wines right. develops my palate and then gets me to understand the wines that I represent. Yeah, that's something I like about the industry too. There's no rivalry and there's no you people just really appreciate other people's work too. I know I've got photos in here of what we drank that day. Uh, but just the, the the seafood we had, um, the presentation, uh, the service, just everything was incredible. Um, I will find this photo. I'm close. Here we go. All right, so let's see. We had a Mount Horrocks Riesling which is in the Clara Valley. Uh, Water Valley is a, a sub-viticultural region within the Clara Valley. Clara Valley was um, Jesuit monks planted. Okay. So my sister went to Georgetown here in here in D.C., or Georgetown, um, and I've, I've learned a lot about Jesuit monks. So the first time I went to the Clara Valley, I went to a place called um, Seven Hills. There was one in Washington State, so we, we can't have that wine in the U.S. because of trademark issues, but uh, that was uh, still made by monks. Uh, there's the there's the Tyrrells Old Vine Semyon that we drank. Uh, drank an Old Vine Viognier, and that's the St. Hallett GSM that we drank. That was really good. So anyway, that, that was a cool experience um, just to, I mean... You can see it's not, it's not fair, but some of the presentations. 
Yeah, I'm sure with this food, the pictures don't do it justice. No, they I mean, don't. They don't. But, oh, it's just amazing. Uh, but anyway, I, I've been trying to get in there for 20 years. Yeah. And I finally was able to get a reservation and go. So wow. it was it was wow. spectacular. That must have been an experience. It really was. <laughs> and Sydney's one of my favorite cities. My oldest daughter is named after Sydney. Yeah. Because it's just, it's, it, it's, it's like, I, I try to explain it to people. It's like taking um, San Francisco... Eh, God, it's really hard to explain. But the when you first hear about Australia, you think of like London in the in the fifties and sixties. You think you're going over to have bangers and mash, and it, it was not that way. The food was just off the charts. I was totally blown away. They really care about even if you go to a local cafe, the food is amazing. Huh. Same thing in New Zealand. I they they don't pasteurize their milk or their cheese or their butter. So, so the flavor is just incredible. Yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot. So I took over to this place um, about eight months ago, and just having a background in wine, nothing to do with food, but all these food is like imported from Italy and stuff like that. So wow. I've learned a lot just by food. Just looking behind you, yeah. looking at the pastas, pastas, olive oils. Yeah, it's the benefits of olive oil versus all of the oils and stuff like that. It's. Hmm. Uh, a wealth of knowledge that i've definitely gained but i'm trying to learn about aged balsamic right now that's the one i'm we can learn together I'm, <laughs> it gets sweeter over time i know that when you're barrel aged, it gets sweeter and thicker that's all i've got so far I'll let you know when i am <laughs> I'll, I'll learn it and then we'll do a podcast and i'll teach you all about that once i learn it <laughs> I, bu I bought a bottle of a of, of white balsamic the other day by accident so i'm interested to see what that tastes like yeah, I, I went to buy just a regular bottle of balsamic, and I bought it by accident. Wasn't really paying attention. Yeah, we have a few. We have a few over here. Cool. The lemon cucumbers are our most popular one. Really? I don't like it. It's a little too citrusy for my palate, but it is by far. I reorder it constantly. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Lemon cucumber. But um, let's uh, let's segue a little bit to kind of the business side of it. What what kind of intrigued you to kind of start your own business to uh, go off on your own and kind of because it's it's a dive it's a plunge into the deep end oh, starting a, your own <laughs> def, definitely a, a, a plunge um in in 2019 i was working for a distributor in new jersey uh, that distributor was merging with a very big distributor okay. um i i don't know off the top of my head but the the way that i try to explain it is on the other side of the merger there were many family members and for someone like me i was in my late 20s in a general manager role um knew that i wasn't long in the tooth for for this job knowing that there were many people on the other side um my wife and i always wanted to have our own steakhouse but i knew i didn't want to go back in this <laughs> in the restaurant business so i i turned to her one day in in massachusetts where we live it's actually one of very few states where you can own wholesale retail and import under the same roof really so I decided my wife is from Massachusetts. We decided to move back to where she's from. I young kids. My in-laws were really good with my kids. My wife wanted to be close to her parents so that I could travel and, and build build the business. So I said, you know, it's 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 I know we want to do a steakhouse, but we're not going to do a steakhouse. We're actually gonna buy a store and then start importing wine. Well, I never bought the store. Because at the end of the day, it's all about cash flow. And, and when you're importing wine, you import a container of wine, it's $100,000, $120,000. Right. You know, that's a lot of cash flow. I mean, that's probably a, probably 
half, if not three quarters of the inventory you have in this store. That's what I was going to say. I mean, you can't really, it's hard to have whole import portfolio to match a retail store's portfolio because I'm ordering cases at a, like a case at a time versus containers at a time. Right. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's limited to what I can do because of cash flow. So I have to be really selective on what we put in the portfolio, make sure it's going to turn, make sure we're going to turn that cash flow in order to turn around and buy the next thing. So, right. and, and in the meantime, building the brands, um, at, at, at the same time, we haven't really talked about New Zealand and New Zealand is one of my favorite places to talk about yeah, because I, so I right. just, um, it's funny. I start. I started in Australia. I started in South Australia, back in two thousand. So two thousand, late late nineties, early two thousands. Australia, New Zealand were exploding in the U.S. Cloudy Bay was just coming on the market. Everybody was talking about it, and here I am with with my Australian portfolio, going around seeing retailers, trying to find distributors, and everyone say, Yeah, yeah, Australia. Talk to me about New Zealand. Yeah, you know, because because it was just coming on the scene. So I got involved with with a brand at the time. Uh, hopefully, they don't get mad because I'm not involved with them anymore. But I got involved with a brand called Tohu, T O H U. Okay. Um, they they have a second label called um, Kono, which is pretty popular now. Which is those names like Matua and everything? They're all Maori influence, right? Yes, yes, and, and this one particularly was owned by the Maori. Interesting. So in in Putting those two things together, a culture, a people, and then a wine grown off their land. Yeah. The passion was just so amazing. Do they have a long history with with wine? With or? agriculture. Okay. Because New Zealand is a big export economy. Mm-hmm. So um, it, obviously, you know what a kiwi fruit is. But I mean, apples, pears, peaches. I mean, if, if you walk through your local Whole Foods or your local grocery store and you pick up any type of fruit, spin it around and look for the sticker. If it says New Zealand, you know it's going to be really high quality. Interesting. It's, That's good to know. And and it was a major issue during COVID because it's a, it was a massive export economy. Everything left. Right. So there were no containers left. There were the ships weren't coming back. It was it, it it was impossible to get stuff out of New Zealand during COVID. It it was one of the, the government actually started producing containers. And and if I'm correct, they, they they bought a couple container ships in order to help with the problem that they were having. So now it's caught up. Everything's calmed down. Shipping costs have started to slip back to where they were. Yeah, uh, I hope they keep going and you know, going because <laughs> it was it was pretty bad. I mean, our lead times in an in a, in a regular environment are. 60 to 75 days from order to fulfillment, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of importing, it was six months. It was crazy. And the out of stocks were, were insane because of it. And then coupled in New Zealand in the 21 vintage, they lost right around 40% of the vintage to frost in Marlborough. So not only are, where the wines are exploding in the U.S., now you've got 40% loss to frost. And then you throw in the shipping issue. Right. So, and and New Zealand and uh, Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc and Rosé are the two fastest growing uh, so wines in the, Marlboro in the industry. Marlboro is what I think of. Um, well, as soon as you say New Zealand, Marlboro, Sauvignon Blanc. 
that's kind of the first thing what uh what other interesting things are there what are the new things what would you kind of suggest off the beaten path if 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 i was to talk about new zealand myself the, the one thing that's been difficult in my career to understand but uh, also understanding the american consumer is that Pinot Noir in New Zealand is some of the best I've ever had in my life. And growing up with a father that loved Burgundy, that's a lot. Right. You know, I, I remember, you know, brown bagging a bottle of New Zealand Pinot Noir, not telling my father what it was, and pouring it in a glass. He's like, wow, this is really good. I think it's Oregon. It might be Old World. You know, and, and you get down on the South Island. So Marlborough is on the northern tip of the South Island. The more you travel south, you get to an area called Central Otago. And Central Otago, if you look on a map, is, is on the 44th parallel. You flip that map, and now you're in the Willamette Valley in Burgundy, in the nor northern hemisphere. Flip the map, and you're in Central Otago. So some of the best Pinot Noirs I've ever had in my life came from Central Otago. Marlborough is starting to produce some amazing Pinot. The thing with Pinot Noir, when I first got involved with with New Zealand and Marlborough, is that Pinot Noir was on on the vine was two or three years old, so it looked like rosé in a glass. It had no color, and and I used to run around saying, "Hey, if you can't read your New York Times through your Pinot Noir, it's not Pinot Noir." <laughs> you know, I was trying trying to push it, but but it didn't have the color. But now the vine age has gotten to twenty twenty five years old, and we're starting to see the color the way it should be. So, and, and the flavor profile is amazing. Great acidity. That, that's one of the hardest things to do right. is to, to have naturally retained acidity. You think about Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, it's so refreshing, it's crisp. It's all about the acid. You know, right. I always say in, in the words of Jerry Garcia, acid is good. So it, it, it seriously, when, when, when you taste a new New Zealand Pinot Noir, you know, it's it's almost like um, the terroir of, of or not necessarily terroir, but but the, the the temperature, the daily terroir in in Marlborough is almost like you're in Alaska. So in in the middle of the summer, you'll have eighteen to twenty hours of sunlight, and then you flip it in the winter, you've got six to eight hours of sunlight. So you think about a grape sitting in the sun for that long all day long, it's slow ripening because Marlborough is cool. It, right. it really doesn't get over 80 degrees. So you have this really slow ripening. Right. And then you've got a, a, a real variety of soil types. I mean, it's 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 one of the youngest geological countries in the soil world. Soil-wise, do they have more volcanic soils? What kind of what kind of soils can you find there? Glacial wash, volcanic. I mean, it's 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 wild. They they active volcanoes. Right. That's you know, what I was gonna. An island, you know. So. You know, I, I I talk about you know if if I was if you had never been in New Zealand, never seen it before, I always tell people take Aspen and Hawaii and slam them together and that's what you get. You actually, get I actually lived in Hawaii for four years. Oh, there you go. So you, so, you, so you get it. So it's, it's, it's subtropic. Right. And then you have these beautiful mountains. When you, when you get into the South Island and you get, get south of Marlborough, they call it um, the Southern Alps. The, these mountains, they're like this. So they're, they're really young geologically. When I say young, they're billions of years old or right. whatever, whatever the, you know, the age is. But it, it, they, they, there's the thing to do. And if you've ever met a Kiwi, they're crazy. 
I mean, they're all about, you know, adventure. They're all about the sport. So they love helo skiing. They love doing really crazy stuff. And it's because of what they have to work with. I mean, we, I would give my left arm to have some of the stuff that they have down there up here. Uh, but it, it, when you, when you get down to New Zealand and you get down to central Otago, it, it's some of the most beautiful scenery I've ever seen in my life. Um, obviously, uh, Lord of the Rings was filmed in New Zealand and, and you see, I did not know that. So the, their film industry is, is huge now be, because of Lord of the Rings, all of, all, all the technology, everything. I'm trying to remember the guy's name, the, the producer from Lord of the Rings. It'll come to me. Anyway, he, I, I just went, he's got a museum in Marlborough and it's all, all world war two planes. And it's, it's not only American and British, but it's it, it's Russian, it's Japanese, it's it's it, it's German, and it, he he basically he's got one of the coolest collections I've ever seen. Um, Jackson Jackson, that's his first name. Can't think of it. Anyway, that that sparked the film industry. Uh, Last Samurai was was filmed. Um, uh, MI two, I think one of the Mission Impossible movies was filmed. Interesting. Just in Central Otago, so everything that I'm talking about. Um, I went with my middle daughter, um, her senior year in high school. She came on a business trip with me with a friend, and we did a helicopter tour, all of all around Central Otago, and it's one of the most amazing places. We landed on a glacier. I mean, it was. It, I mean, most intense thing I've ever seen in my life. So, I mean, New Zealand, if if you don't have it on your bucket list, it needs to be there because it's one of the coolest countries I've ever been to. And on top of it, I'm a cheese head. And <laughs> some of the best cheeses I've ever had in my life. Oh, from New Zealand? From New Zealand because they, they, nothing's pasteurized. And, right. and then on top of it, you, you, you have, um, you, you think about where it is uh, in the world and in terms of topography. Um it was, it's just amazing. So, and, and there's no people, I think, I think they're now at 8 million people and, and more than 80% of those people live around Auckland or on the North Island. So the South Island is, is desolate. Interesting. So you're, so, and then that's why I imagine you like to focus on Australian, New Zealand wines for your portfolio. I do. I do. And, and, and at the time there weren't a lot of people doing it when I first got involved back in the early two thousands. Now there's a plethora of people doing what I do. Um, New Zealand has come on so strong in the U S it's, it's kind of like to me, what Cabernet is to the, to the young wine drinker. It's, it's that shock and awe to your palate. When you move to white wine, you know, a lot of people, you know, start with Pinot Grigio and then they, over time, they find New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, and and you just see their eyes light up when they taste New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc for the first yeah, time. Yeah, it's definitely a different element. You just get it's just so refreshing, but you just get more. Yeah, lots of flavor, beautiful acidity. Again, you said it, refreshing, and that and that's all because of of what Marlboro is all about. I, I remember um, learning early on, a lot of people have tried to emulate that flavor profile. And they can't because in, in, in Marlborough, the, the skin thickness of a Sauvignon Blanc grape is three times as thick as it is in the Loire Valley or in Napa Valley. And that, and obviously that's where the flavor come, comes from. It comes from right. the skin. So that's, that's why Marlborough makes some of the most amazing Sauvignon Blanc I've ever had. Um, is, is be, it, it all starts with the grape. 
You can't yeah, you can't make good wine from bad grapes. You got to start with good yeah. grapes, right? So, and and that that's my shout out to the viticulturalists of the world. You know, they they do a lot of hard work, and they don't always get all the recognition. You know, the winemakers get the recognition, but in but in terms of Marlborough, to me, it starts with the grape. Right. You, you got to start with a really high quality Sauvignon Blanc grape in order to make great wine. Yeah, I really like how you highlighted that. Um, you you take New Zealand, the amount of people that don't have the history that France and Italy has with actually winemaking, but they have the agricultural experience. Right. You know, as far as their, their, their history goes. So for them to take a grape, it's just another plant and be able to produce and now kind of keep up and compete uh, in markets. I think that's a, my understanding is, is, is Marlborough, the first real commercial grapes were planted in the early seventies which is to us very young right very young to them you talk about a 25 year old vine that's an old vine right <laughs> so it's 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 wild to see the evolution of of New Zealand and and the growth not only in in the United States but globally the the, the global demand for Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is like we were talking about when I first came in the store talking about Sancerre I mean that just there's not enough no, there's and not there, enough to go around. And, there, and there's not enough Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc to go around. We've actually seen kind of a shift in price because the demand is so high. We're, we're seeing prices go up on Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc because it's, it's, it's just so hard to get what you need in order to fulfill that, that need. All right. Especially nowadays when something starts trending, you know, I mean, stuff can, can trend overnight nowadays yep. you know That's all true. of a sudden with, with, with what we're doing right now exactly, this is what exactly. causes it we're I don't, I don't know if we're there yet but eventually <laughs> eventually we'll get to we'll get there yeah but start um somewhere. Be exactly but no i mean uh seriously said uh, overnight something can trend and all of a sudden vineyards are uh, we don't know what to do you know right how, do, how are we going to produce more juice so. and it's, you know you look at what's going on in california in 17 18 and 19 with the fires and the popularity of Cabernet uh, up up until right around now, it was very hard to find Cabernet for the last couple of years. I produced my own Napa Valley Cabernet for a while, and I stopped making it in, in 18 because I just couldn't get the fruit that I needed, couldn't get the source that I needed in order to hit the price point that we wanted. Right. So I just stopped. And and that's where Australia comes in. So Australia kind of lost its, its luster, as I was talking about before, because they, they went to the right too high alcohol too much oak too much extraction of fruit they've gotten back to their 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 roots and and australia for me has really turned the corner in the last 18 months the american consumer is starting to recognize that oh wow these are really high quality wines we were talking today about um wines from langhorn creek wines from a property i represent heartland um the red and green labels yes so spice trader so one i can you elaborate can you talk a little bit about that one because that had a very unique flavor profile that i haven't oh it's 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 wild so it, it langhorn creek is southeast of adelaide it's actually considered cool climate so if if you think about the the climate the terroir of of a place like alsace it's the same so 
Cool days, 72, 68, maybe 75. Beautiful breezes coming off Antarctica, keeping the fruit cool. So really slow ripening. And then at night, same thing. It cools down. The fruit goes into a dormant stage. And then in the morning, it starts ripening again. So this one particular vineyard, uh, Heartland, that I represent for the United States, they've got a lot of gum trees around the property. And... I, I did not know this, and and uh, Nick Kuchenmeister, who is 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 my counterpart in Australia, tells the story best. But a but a gum tree, when it gets hot, it sweats. I didn't know this. I just learned this. And when it sweats in, in this particular area, it sweats a blue mist. And when the mist settles on the grapes, it turns into an oil. You can't wash it off. Even the rain doesn't wash it off. You can't sit there with a hose and wash it off. So it it settles on the grapes, and then when you when you crush these grapes, they they have this influence of of spearmint of eucalyptus. Right. And it, you get it on the finish. You get it on the nose. It, it it's it's not overpowering, but yet it's it's like whoa, what did I just taste? It's a, it's a different element that I've never tasted in a wine before. That's why I was, and that's why. I, like wanted you to highlight it well, it's, it was... it, what what i what i'm amazed with is is you know we've watched the evolution of cabernet in california and now it's so popular that in order to get you know sub 15 dollar price point you're looking at a california appellation where to get good cabernet in australia 15 dollars and below you're talking about an appellated wine, in some cases a sub-appellated wine, with a lot of history, with vine age, and you know, and, and then you talk about quality, and, right. and that's that's what we're seeing come come out of Australia is that quality value relationship that I think has somewhat escaped inexpensive wines in, in California. Um, Australia is doing it much better, in my opinion. And, right you know you can pay for my security after this <laughs> yeah i i always that's kind of the reference i make with california it's a big jump once you get to the 20 like the 20 to 30 to the 50 dollar range it's a huge difference it's, it's not a 25 dollar jump in quality it's like if, if you're it's if, marginal no right, I, I, right. I i know what you're saying yeah, yeah if, if that kind of makes sense it's a it's a big jump once you get there well, it's it's also when you when you look at the acquisition cost. So when you when you look at buying a vineyard in California right. and, and you look at the cost of real estate, it's out of control. But then you go down to a place like New Zealand or Australia, New Zealand, Marlborough, half of Marlborough was was sheep herding land for years and years and years. And then in area like the Awateri, they started planting it in in the late 90s, early 2000s, which unfortunately it's it's very frost prone in that area. And that's what happened in the 21 vintage. We had a blanket frost. But in, in terms of cost of acquisition, vineyard cost back then was very low. Right. Now it's, I, I think, we're we're almost at the same level as as Napa, you know, where where the first I think Napa acre sold for a million dollars ten years ago. Marlboro is now there, right? And we're talking an acre of agricultural land for a million dollars. I mean, it's crazy, but um, but if you go back, same thing. Australia cost of acquisition, it's very low in order to buy land in order to plant. But you have to find the right terroir, obviously, but. 
that to me is why we see the quality value relationship being very high coming out of Australia right. and New Zealand. Right. Um, it's, it's because of that. Right. Ian, thank you so much uh, for stopping by. No, is no there problem. any, um, where can we find more information about your wines, uh, your portfolio? Uh, so I, my website is Davies. Uh, that's my last name, D-A-V-I-E-S, family selections with an S.com. Um, you can find my wines. Um, I'm in 38 states across the, across the country. Uh, DC is, I, I love Washington DC because of the, the diversity here. Um, uh, and, and also, uh, great restaurant scene in this town. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just, you know, the, the diversity of people that are here and, and, you know, I, the range of wines that I see in the stores here versus outside of the metropolitan area, it's it's amazing what what consumers are going for here. The trends start here. Which yeah, is, which every is single wild. week I get uh, pet nats, orange wines, biodynamic wines. New, this new like everybody's asking for this new way of making wines and. I got to keep up. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun time to be in the wine industry. Yeah. It, it really is. And um, out, outside of that, you know, I, I, I tell people, please, you know, grab a bottle of Australian wine. Try it. Because it's, it, to, to your generation, you, you weren't um, tainted by that that brand with the tail. I won't right. say it out loud. But that, <laughs> that, that changed the perception of the American consumer on Australia that, consumers thought that oh they're all cheap wines well they're not these right. are these are wines of heritage a sense of place i mean the terroirs are vastly different i mean you can you can go across australia from from margaret river on the west coast through to south australia the barossa mclarenville clare valley um down to langhorn creek and then you go east of there uh, it, it, it's it, Australia is the same geological size as the United States. They're exactly the same size. I actually have a map in my office that overlays <laughs> one on the other, um, and it, and it, it all along the southern coast. I never thought about that actually. It did. It, it, it's massive, um, it, and it and you know to go from a terroir south of Perth, Margaret River, across to the Barossa. Uh, northwest to, to Clare Valley. I mean, the terroirs are such, they're so different and the, and the styles are so different. It, 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 it's been a very interesting trek for me um, talking about Australian wine, talking about, you know, I, I said it in the beginning, you know, they call us New World, but yet our, our vine age goes back to the early 1840s, late 1830s. Um, and, and we haven't, you know, knock on wood, there's, there's been some tiny bits of phylloxera in Australia, but it, you know, knock on wood, thank God we're still on original rootstock, yeah. uh, back when the Rhone Valley had its phylloxera issues in 1904, 1905, they went back to the Barossa and the Clare Valley to take their cuttings back to Europe. So again, it's, they, they call us new world when actually world, world, Europe <laughs> replanted on our rootstock back in the in the early 1900s. So it's it's just really cool and it, and it's fun to be involved and and fun to taste really cool stuff. Like I said, Australia is really 
um, getting behind Italian varietals. I saw some Gruner Veltliner in in, really? uh, in Marlboro in my last trip. They're they're planting it. It's a perfect terroir for it. Yeah, um, I think that's the next thing you're going to see on the scene from from Marlboro is is Gruner. You heard it here first. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and and the sparkling wines coming out of Australia, and New Zealand are, are are phenomenal. If you think of the the, the the quality of uh, and and the acid profile right. that's coming out of Marlboro. Well, they're they're making great sparkling wine as well, uh, and and doing it in in, in Method Champenois. So Anything that you're looking to import anytime soon? I or? haven't i I haven't deviated, but i i do um, I do have my eye on some Tasmanian sparkling wine. Um, Tasmania makes some great Pinot Noir. Yeah. Um, it's it's cooler climate, uh, great terroir for Pinot. Well, some great Pinot Noir, and obviously, you know, one of the one of the basis of great champagne or great sparkling wine is Pinot Noir. So uh, I, I keep an eye out for good Tasmanian sparkling wine. One last question: You're you're at home with the family. You just cooked a New York strip. What are you opening up? Well, I think today you you had the opportunity to drink. Um, we opened a, a 2018 uh, Ben Glazer Amon Ra, which which is from an amazing vineyard called Ebenezer, uh, one of the oldest uh, vineyards in Australia under vine. Uh, ben makes some of the most elegant, balanced wines I've ever had in my life, um, and and you know really compliment to him going back to you know his first couple vintages when uh, the Wine Spectator. Robert Parker gave him a hundred points. He didn't do anything crazy like some of the big cult wines in Napa. You know, his price today is the same price it was in two thousand and four. That's beautiful. You know, which that's is really cool. So uh, that's I would open a bottle of almond rock if I was having a New York strip. Awesome. Ian, thanks again for stopping by. My pleasure. Thank you so um, much for having me. Of course. It's always a pleasure to to just meet new people and talk about wine. And for myself, I mean, being young in the industry, just to learn uh, all this information and take it in. So to me to watch your generation and how you market, this is, <laughs> this is awesome. This is awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, please drink more wine. Drink more Australian and New Zealand wine. Yeah, that, that's very true. But to me, you can drink any wine. <laughs> I'm okay. As long as, as long as you're popping a cork, or in this case, a screw cap, um, we're very happy. All right. Cheers.